Hello, Jay. Hello, hello. How are you? I'm good. Good. Good to see you. Uh, why don't we start? Um, give me your background. My background. Um, let's see. I am uh, a self-proclaimed music tech nerd with a bad social media habit. Uh, my going, uh, you know, I don't know how far back you want to go, but I went to, uh, been a music fan all my life, like most of us that would be listening to this podcast. Um, got into managing a band in college. Uh, thought that was very cool. Um, got into, started a little indie label uh, right out of college. Um, saw, as I always tell the story, I saw a real player beta dot eight or something in the mid early mid nineties, I guess it was, you know, streaming audio at 9,600 baud. Uh, and, uh, and I thought, Holy shit, this changes everything. Um, and that was kind of my epiphany about how music and tech, um, can do some really kind of fascinating, fascinating things. And so for the rest of my, uh, uh long kind of uh, tenure in this, in this industry, I spent trying to work my way down towards streaming music and being in that business, uh, which I did probably first or the proper proper first time in 2005 uh, when I ended up at AOL and I was working on one of the first generation music subscription services called Music Now, which was acquired from Circuit City, um, who had acquired it previously. And, uh, and we launched it as AOL Music Now in, I think, 2005, 2006. It was one of those Microsoft Plays for Sure compatible services. Uh, it was, um, but it was cool. It was kind of my first realization that uh, on-demand streaming music can enable a lot of really kind of fascinating and interesting things. Um, so did that for a while. AOL shut that down. I went on to work on AOL Radio uh, and AOL Music Proper and Winamp and Shoutcast, which were still kind of alive and kicking at AOL at the time. Uh, and uh, worked on those for a few years and then kind of moved out into music recommendation space, a company called MyStrands, um, a bunch of other things. Uh, got involved uh, probably three years ago in an open source project called Tomahawk, which uh, I'm kind of most vocal about now. And, um, and it's something that I still kind of commit as much time as possible to. So uh, I, 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 like to, I like to claim that I was one of the first labels, major or independent, to provide streaming, full-length streaming audio uh, on the website. And the website was an AOL site, by the way, which was horrific that I uh, tried to piece together myself. But I did, and I had a full-length song up there of, uh, of the first and only release off of my label. So I, I, that was a long time ago. But, yeah. but what about yeah. it made you excited? I mean, the quality could have been very good. No, the quality was terrible. Um, you know, it was um, – I, I was just telling somebody this story the other day. So I went to uh, – I was an engineer, undergrad, uh, mechanical, though not having anything to do with computer science. Uh, and then I went um, – after I started my indie label, I went to grad school to – go get re-educated because I had spent two years uh, running a label and managing a band and I was wholly unemployable by kind of the, 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 the quote-unquote real world. So I went back and I got my MBA and I wrote kind of every project that I had in school. And so this was 94 to 96. I wrote on the quote-unquote celestial jukebox, right? And, uh, and I had to start every paper and every project with, when bandwidth isn't an issue, like think about a time when bandwidth isn't an issue. Every song will be available, blah, 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 blah. Um, which was always kind of a stretch. I always felt like I was totally kind of bullshitting my way through, like when bandwidth isn't an issue and we were barely, you know, barely dialing up at, at 96K. Um, uh, and, um, but 
you know, the professors kind of agreed with it. They knew more than I did. Like, yeah, bandwidth's not going to be an issue for forever. Uh, and that started to open up my eyes, like, you know, you know, look where the ball's going, not where it is. And, and so that always kind of propelled me forward, um, thinking about kind of the things you could do. And I remember even at Music Now, we did, um, you know, we were, there was a wholly kind of, you know, purely web experience. And so I had my Windows mobile phone. And so I'd pull up the website on the Windows mobile phone. And over Edge, you know, I would try to stream stuff. And it worked. Technically, it worked. And I would show it to people. I'm like, isn't this amazing? Like, look, I'm streaming music to my phone. This is this is killer. And it was like, well, that's the worst like experience I've ever seen or heard. Um, but yeah, it was just always kind of pushing that out and saying, well, one day, you know, all these problems will be solved. All these infrastructure problems will be solved. So what can you do once it's solved? So that's always kind of where I've been, uh, you know, kind of running towards. And that goalpost always moves. It always, it always does move. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you had told me, you know, 10 years ago that I'd be working on a, on, on a, on a, a desktop media player, which I wouldn't have thought I would be working on 10 years ago. Cause I thought, we'll just do everything in the web. Like, why would you ever build desktop software? Um, so I've kind of flipped, um, I've kind of evolved or devolved my perception on, on, on that. But if you told me I'd be doing that and working on uh, aggregating and streaming from you know a dozen different streaming music services so that you can solve the problem of all of these different silos of different streaming music content from all over the world, I would have thought you're crazy. Like That would be a fantastic problem to have in 2005. Like Who would have thought like that would be our biggest problem, that we've got too much content available from too many sources? Yeah. When bandwidth is not an issue then you will be able to stream. Yeah, I mean, I think there, there's two pieces of that, right? When there's the technical ability to stream a 300 meg song with no kind of loss in performance, and then B, um, when the relationships with the carriers have changed and the billing plans have changed to the point where that becomes uh, uh, viable financially for consumers. Right. So, you know, we could be streaming a lot more kind of interesting stuff more often, but we're all capped at, you know, whatever. I was capped at five gig. I was about to run over this month. I had to up my plan. Most of my music listening during my commute is underground, so I'm not streaming at all. I've cached all this stuff, so this is like a very specific kind of New York uh, music consumption problem that most people in the world don't have. But so, you know, I have to cache everything when I go out on the trains, and so most of that kind of consumption is, is happening there. If I was streaming everything, so when they've got, um, you know, uh, 4G kind of down in the tunnels, uh, and I just stream everything. I can imagine that I'll be up at 20 gig, you know, in terms of data. Um, so yeah, I had to kind of switch to the 10 gig family plan and tell my wife like, you don't ever use any data, so I'll just use like nine gig of that, and you can have the the, the one. Right. So, um, so let's talk about the silo things. I know this yeah. is like a this is my soapbox. This is your soapbox. Yeah. Uh, so to why don't because I'm kind of off mic. Uh, and you're back yeah. on Mike. Why do you explain? So, yeah, so kind of the way that my uh, train of thought goes on, on, on silos, particular, particularly around subscription music. Um, there's obviously tons of silos when you talk about free music, whether it's YouTube or SoundCloud or kind of whatever, you know, flavor of the day or whatever radio station. Um, and silos just being the fact that as a consumer, you find yourself having to jump from one experience to the next to the next. Um, either to get all the different types of programming that you want um, or the kind of promise of the social web when it comes to music is wholly broken by the fact that music is not portable across services, right? So if you send me a, a, a SoundCloud link, it's great because SoundCloud's free and available everywhere. I can click on that and that works for me. 
But if you send me a Spotify link and I'm in a country that doesn't have Spotify or I use Beats or I use RDO, um, that link has absolutely no value to me and I'll never click it because I know it's going to take me into a service. Like you've become a pawn in the marketing scheme of each of the, the, the large service providers to try to get you to convert me to the service that you use, right? And so this is the same kind of mechanism that was propagated by the wireless carriers forever. And, you know, early on, I always tell the story about early on, at least in the U.S., you couldn't, if you remember that back far, than, far enough, you couldn't send a text to somebody on a different carrier. It would cost you extra or you couldn't even do it at first. And so nobody texted, right? Because you're like, well, I, I don't know if they're going to get it. I don't know if it's going to work, I, you know. So what came along was interoperability for texting across all the different carriers. And you knew, like, whenever I text somebody, they're going to get it. And they're going to be able to know what the content was. They'll be able to read it. They'll be able to consume it. So this is kind of the soapbox that I want to solve because I'm a huge fan of subscription music services. I've been in that business uh, directly before. I'm not necessarily interested in being in that business directly again. But I hope that more and more people see the value in subscription music services. And I think they are. And I think ultimately it is not if, it's just a matter of when the mass majority of music fans are in a relationship with a subscription music service. Um, so that's kind of step one. And then step two is, as you walk down the logic, is some people say, and the internet, like, winner takes all. Um, but I don't think that that pertains to licensed music because it's not in the best interest of the, of the, of the people that license the music, the labels, generally speaking, to be put themselves in a position where they can be held hostage by one buyer, right? So if you were selling whatever widgets and you only sold, if Walmart was your only outlet, you'd be scared to death because you're like, well, what happens when Walmart, Walmart doesn't want to do business with me anymore? Um, you need to, to diversify and make sure that your content can get everywhere. And as a seller of content, you want to make sure that your content is available to the widest possible audience. So those uh, labels got themselves in that position early on with, with iTunes, with downloads, where Apple owned so much of that market that basically they did what Apple dictated. Um, so it's in their best interest to make sure there are multiple strong competitors in the streaming music landscape. So I don't think it's a winner-takes-all, like Spotify-takes-all, which what a lot of people kind of believe, because I don't think the labels would let it happen, because it puts them in a weaker position then. If they made sure there's a strong Spotify, and there's a strong Beats, and there's a strong RDO, and there's a strong Deezer... Um, that gives them much better negotiating power when it's time to renegotiate and gives them the ability to play them off of each other. So that gets me to the point where like, I'm, I'm convinced that there's always going to be multiple strong players in subscription music, and there'll always be an interoperability problem across geographies, across service providers, and everybody else. And I think that problem needs to be solved for the, for the good of the entire industry as a whole. And so that's like my soapbox about why there needs to be this interoperability layer where... If I post a, you know, share a link to you, uh, you click on it and it plays from whatever service you happen to have a relationship with. Um, if I embed a music player on a blog, when you come and click play on it, it plays from whatever service provider you have a relationship with. And for me, it plays from whatever service I have a relationship with. And for somebody that we don't know who it is, when they click play, it rolls back to the free promotional, you know, stream from SoundCloud or YouTube or what have you. So always like do the right thing at the right time for the right person is, is kind of the, the, the uh, that's, that's, that is, those are the legs of the soapbox. And, and so uh, I've been working on building services and offerings on top of that that hopefully help kind of solve that problem. All right. Sorry for, sorry for the long-windedness. No, no. Yeah. I, not only 
it is interesting kind of how everyone's trying to carve out their own position in, in the market. And it's, it's funny because, um, you know, I've got, uh, I pay for multiple services as well. And I have this endless battle on my commute home where if I'm listening to, um, uh, you know, SoundCloud or, or a stream from SoundCloud through Tom Hawk or through some other player and my family's at home and they fire up the Sonos and they start playing something from Spotify, you know, my stream stops because you can only have one simultaneous stream based on the, the, the requirements and security requirements of the label. So, um, so we kind of fight, like we play tug of war with this, with a stream as I'm coming home. And so I texted her, uh, my wife the other day and I'm like, or she texted me like, Hey, it's my turn. You know, I want to listen. You listen to something else. And I, so I texted her back. I'm like, we'll use beats. And she said, but I don't want curated playlists. So I think that's fascinating because they're staking out their position is like, this is what we're about. Um, she didn't even realize that it had like full on demand capabilities, right? She thought it was just about the place. But it's interesting. Everyone's, you know, trying to find their space and, and, and how to convince this mass market that this is something that they want to engage in. So everyone's kind of trying to, to pick out the different fish out of the barrel. And I don't even know how we got on that topic. But, uh, but it is interesting. Oh, so one of the points is in terms of, of the fragmentation, you talked about they're all good for different things, which is kind of how we got there. And then also, you know, there's this growing, uh, looming exclusivity, you know, fight to the death that started already with Spotify and Zeppelin. Uh, and, you know, Deezer is basically signing bands, essentially. And I think this is going to happen more and more. Um, you know, the subscription streaming services are becoming the next labels. And for them to differentiate from each other, they're going out and either spending big money for exclusive content or they're investing in exclusive content. And that's totally analogous to what you see Netflix and Hulu and HBO doing because, you know, 95% of the catalog of those video services is the same in Amazon Prime. And so what they're doing is going out and investing in exclusive content with the hope, and I think ultimately the hope of the rights holders, that, hey, if we can get, if we can fragment these uh, catalogs just enough we may be able to get the heavy lovers of this content to pay for multiple services, right. which behooves them. Um, and what you're doing is paying multiple times for the 5% differential in the catalogs. Uh, and so I think, I think that is something that, that, that I don't know is uh, actively spoken out loud, but I think you know, one of the biggest fears of the labels uh, certainly is around all you can eat streaming is that you have kneecapped the spending of their biggest fans, right. right? So you've taken it from, you know, however many hundred dollars down to $120. Um, and so if you can find ways, and again, I don't know if this is conscious or not, but if they was able to create an ecosystem where there's enough difference between Beats and Spotify and Audio that I pay for two of the three, um, they've now gotten the annual spend of the biggest music fans. Uh, they've not doubled it, right? So, so I think I think there's a lot of those kind of machinations going on behind the scenes too. As a consumer, I'm certainly not a fan of, of windowing. Uh, I see the um, I, I see the appeal um, to those that are doing it. I think it creates a lot, of, and this is you know also part of the kind of the fifth leg maybe of my of my soapbox. Um, I don't know if I said four before, but. Uh, windowing creates interesting problems. Um, and because so many artists are using some of the free promotional platforms for SoundCloud in particular for pre-releases, um, it creates kind of issues where if you go and embed, and this goes to the kind of the embedded player scenario I was talking about before, but if you go and embed, you know, the new uh, Afghan Wigs album, 
uh, with the Spotify player. Uh, new Afghan Wigs album coming out coming out next week. It's it's fantastic, by the way. Yeah. I love it. Really? Yeah. Nice. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and if you embedded that with SoundCloud on all the bloggers embedded the SoundCloud player, they actually don't have it up on SoundCloud. I don't think, but um, like Manchester Orchestra, the whole album pre-release SoundCloud. You embed that in there. Everyone comes to the blogs and they're listening to it. It's great. They're getting tons of pre-release streams and building a bunch of of, of, of awareness. Uh, and then the album's released and the SoundCloud player is still there. And then you and me and everybody else, all these people with you know paying relationships with to these uh, streaming providers, are still playing the free streams. Right. So they're throwing away the fractional penny and you're throwing away the charting, uh, the data about building up in the charts. Because it's not doing the right thing, like it's moved from this pre-release to this release. So why can't we have some more logical way to kind of work down that continuum from you know a windowed release or or, or a pre-release to a release to what have you, uh, and do that in a more seamless way? So, um, but yeah, windowing. I think you will see a lot more of it. I, I agree. Um, like I said, I think it's uh, you know it has its pros and cons. Um, most of the time, I think for most users, and this is I guess the the goal of it. Um, We'll just wait. Um, there are very few artists that would get me to, to buy in advance of a stream. Uh, although, you know, I think the Pixies did it um, to me, you know, a few months ago, but that was probably the only one in the last five years. I think uh, it's funny that you say that because uh, one of the things that I really liked this year um, or that I got really into is the iTunes pre-release mm -hmm. um, because it's like Christmas. You know, you, you wake up in the middle of the night and your phone has a brand new album on it. And you go, oh, that's um, So I did that twice this year. Yeah. That for Temples, uh, which I was very happy about. And I did that for Jonah's Policewoman. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, both of those albums showed up on all the streaming services the next day. Mm -hmm. So there probably was a half a second of me saying, fuck. Right. You know, I could have saved 10 bucks. Um, but I think because I'm in the business and have been and have been a creator so long yeah. that there is a part of me now that says meh it's 10 bucks right that is two cups of coffee at Stump Town yeah someone deserves me buying yeah. cups of coffee for putting on a record and enjoy yeah yeah no and, and I don't have any issues with uh, and for me uh, you know and, and not to project my uh, kind of behavior my values on other people it's not the issue that um, it costs money the issue for me is a download represents a lot of work. Uh, I am very convenience oriented person. If you offer me a download, my first reaction is, Oh shit, I got to download that thing. I got to, I got to load it into my library. If I want to get on my phone, I got to do this whole other rigmarole to get it onto my phone. And then I'm going to be on a different machine and I'm not going to have it. So for me, it's just like, Oh, you know, I got to clean up the metadata. I got to do all the shit I don't want to do. So for me, I'm like, I'll, I'll, Hey, I'll happily pay you for something. I'd pay you for I would pay for pre-release access to a stream, but I don't want the download. It's like keep the download. I'll give you the money, keep the download, give me something else. Um, so that I think I th and I think you're seeing that happen more and more. I mean, you talked about iTunes pre-release like it showed up on your phone. That's magical if you've got an iPhone. Uh, most of the world is on an Android uh, and and increasingly so. So I think that the iTunes kind of um, value there is quickly dwindling and there was a big article on billboard today about how they're between a rock and a hard place like what do they do about music because itunes radio hasn't performed to the way they wanted it to so do they bring it to 
Do they stay relevant? Do they bring a streaming service out? If they do to be relevant, they need to bring it to Android because the mass market's on the Android, which is the same kind of conundrum they had when they had to bring iTunes to Windows. Um, which is which is but 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 is but is what made their music business like as a you know as a single platform product it was not successful and so you've got to be cross platform and you got to be available everywhere and, and and so I think they're in a hard spot like is it more important for them to lock people into iOS I would say yes um, or is it more important for them to be successful at a business that is notoriously hard to be successful in and 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 I would say probably not and so you know the the market is only going to get um, more crowded and more fragmented I wish I knew what what the numbers looked like on Google Play I think as a product it's pretty good uh, there's a lot of stuff I like about it from an experience perspective um, you know I think the kind of nuclear bomb option for Google is they say um, Google Play all access uh, is available with every Android phone I think that, and they, you know, announced that Google All Play Access is now called YouTube Music, <laughs> you know, and I think that gets a lot more people interested. It's well. it, yeah, it's interesting. I, you know, I honestly scratch my head about the YouTube Music stuff. Um, I I don't fully get it. I mean, I get it from the scenario of yes, the kids, quote unquote, the kids, they all go to YouTube to listen to music because it's easy and it's free, uh, and that's where they are anyway. Um, but, you know, one of my most repeated uh, kind of um, isms <laughs> is, uh, you know, if you're building a music experience whose goal it is to demand more attention of the listener, you're doing it wrong because the beauty of music is it doesn't demand all your attention, right? So the idea that when I listen to music, granted, I'm old, right? But when I listen to music, I don't want the video. Right. I'm doing something else. Like, and that's, that's the beauty is like, I can be re- browsing the web and I can be, uh, reading and I can be doing whatever. Um, I can be standing on the subway. Um, so like a YouTube music service with lyrics videos, like, okay, I can kind of, I could, I could see that because lyrics are huge. Lyric videos are huge. You can generate them, um, practically, in, practically for free. Um, so that, that, that I think, yeah, that I think I get, but like this idea or the, the story that they was out last week or earlier this week that they're going to create like art videos out of stock photos. I don't get that at all. Like I don't see the value at all. I, you know, maybe other people do, but I, there, there's something there that doesn't just doesn't ring right with me. There's, there's this very common trap that a lot of music startups fall into and, and maybe Google's falling into too. And that is they realize the economics of the business are, uh, hard to say the least right and so they start thinking about well it has to be free because everybody wants free so that means it needs to be ad supported okay cool we got to go to an ad supported music uh, service the only ads that make any real money are video ads the only way you're going to get people to actually eyes on a video ad is if you make some service that demands a lot of their attention and a lot of interaction that way we can guarantee that they see the video and therefore we're going to get the higher cpms that maybe make us turn this business into something that's profitable and that kind of fallacy is something that so many have chased and so many have failed. You know, Google obviously has the option to, to, or, or opportunity to do it on a much bigger scale and potentially make it work where a lot of others have failed. But I think, I think it's kind of flawed logic. It is we have to make something interactive because that's the only way we can make it make money. Um, and, and, yeah, so, you know, the YouTube stuff, I, I, I'm fascinated to see. Like, you know, I, I, I would love to be completely wrong 
Um, but how that competes or sits next to Google Play, Music All Access, I have no idea. Um, you know, it's obviously a hedge. Um, they apparently aren't, maybe aren't too happy with what's going on there either. But then the story in Billboard was, you know, they showed it around to people and they all kind of said it's not very compelling. So, I'll uh, no, the other, the yeah, YouTube, yeah. The, the iTunes radio thing is interesting. I think, you know, they've, they're noticing that it's not selling as much as they thought it was going to sell of downloads. And I think that's again, just trying to sell, uh, you know, ice to people in the winter. They're not necessarily interested because so many are moving on to streaming, um, the radio itself, I think, was obviously a, a, a very um, tepid move into the space, and I think it was as much about building out their iAds platform as anything else because all the behavioral data you got about radio users, it's mu- probably much more valuable outside the context of music than within it. So if you know that you know, you're listening to uh, the new Jonas Policewoman, then great, that's going to be more valuable to somebody that wants to advertise to you in-app than it is to you in stream, um, most likely. So, uh, you know, that's kind of me waving my hands about wildly. But, I I mean, I think that's what that that was more about, is about getting kind of more behavioral data about people to build make their ad platform as a whole much more interesting to advertisers and provide much more behavioral data about their people that they're advertising to. You know, every so often there's um, this kind of re-emerging meme about the value of music discovery um, that percolates at least on, you know, in, in, in my Twitter feed and, and the things that I read. And so it'll go quiet for a little while, but just this week, a whole bunch of stories started popping up again about, you know, is music discovery worthless? Is it essential? You know, some people say music discovery is, you know, a solution looking for a problem. Nobody really want goes anywhere to discover music. Other people saying, you know, as an artist, it's absolutely essential that people discover new music because that's the only way that we're going to survive. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the kind of um, analogy, and I've engaged in that debate many, many times, and, and I think rel- very recently I've realized it's kind of pointless because um, everybody is, you know, you're talking about something that uh, elicits emotion from people, and I think it, that happens differently for everybody. So kind of my new stance is, when debating how people discover or value discovery of music or don't, uh, replace the word music with food, right? And just, you know, so it's hard to generalize. Like, people always want to discover new food or people never wanted to discover new food. The fact is, I'm hungry. I, I put myself in a position where food, different food is available to me and then I make a choice based on my, you know, how I feel at that moment. Sometimes it will be something new. Sometimes it will be something that I know that I love. So... That's kind of my newest, I'm trying to, I'm working on this kind of philosophy, but I think when you look at it that way, you realize you can't just generalize about how people value discovery of music because you can't generalize how people value discovery of, of food or consumption of food. I always use the food thing too because I <laughs> like to say to people, great, you like free music, show me where you get all your free food. <laughs> well, there you go. You well, unless they got a farm. That's true. Farmers get up early. Yeah, sure. Um, Well, okay. All this gets me back to the point of silos. Yeah. So, if you have all of these disparate places, and and you know, as a big fan of Tomahawk, uh, you know, there's some services I wish were available on it. For Um, sure. Me too. But there are, you know, there's plenty. Yeah. Um, and the you know integration. 
generation into the radio stations. I think it's. I mean, I actually think Tomahawk is one of the best players out there. Well, thank you. It's it, it's it's, you know, uh, I we always want it to be better. Um, there's lots of things that we want to improve, but I I think, uh, um, you know. I like what we've done, and I say we very loosely because, like I said, this is an open source project that people that found each other on the on the internet and said, we all have the same idea. Like, here's the new problem, right? The new problem is different than the old problem. Um, so how do you build a music player that solves the new problem and doesn't worry about the old problem? So tell me how it came about. You went to um, morning? Yeah. <laughs> so it came about... Um, years ago now. Oh, geez, I don't know, five years ago or more. Um... So again, we talked earlier, like I've been on the soapbox about this interoperability kind of data portability problem forever. You know, my playlists are mine. I created those. I should be able to move those from service to service to service. Um, And so, you know, I used to blog. Now I just tweet, but I used to blog and I used to talk about all this stuff. And one day a friend of mine that was working at Last.fm said, you need to see this project that the guys are working on, Um, this open source project called Playdar. Uh, And Playdar was the first you know, music content resolver that I had ever seen or, or at the time didn't really even first understand it until I saw it work. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so my, my friend said, you got to check this thing out. And so I jumped on, you know, an IRC channel, you know, like old school where, where these guys uh, were, were hanging out and, and, you know, I've got a big mouth, obviously. So I just got involved and was asking questions and, and, you know, suggesting ideas and whatever. And it really kind of blew my mind in terms of the way it worked, and that was this idea that you shouldn't have to know or care where a specific music file is when you want to play it. You essentially decouple the name of the song from the source, and then for each user, when you click play, it basically says, okay, given the song name and, and uh, an artist name, find me the vet best available source that I can play it from. And that could be my, my local hard disk. That could be a networked computer across my house. That could be an online locker that could be a streaming music service. Um, and so that was um, something that I thought was amazing. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I tried to get as involved in that as possible. That project, like I said, came out of Last.fm. It was open sourced. It kind of petered out because some of the guys kind of moved on to other projects. Uh, and then about, I think probably six months later, somebody else reached out to me and said, uh, hey, Jay, there's this new music player that's coming out that's built essentially on top of, of Playdar, at least conceptually. Um, you may want to check it out. And so that was, um, you know, like I said, three and a half years ago. And so the core team and I have been kind of involved in this for three and a half years. The guys are all over the world. Um, and we chat on IRC and, you know, we have all the code up on GitHub and we've got, you know, public... Um, 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 ticket trackers and everything else where people come and file feature requests and bugs and everything else and we just kind of work out of there and I, I try to I always joke like if you as a product guy as I, I always call myself you know a product person if you ever want to kind of fine tune your skills as a product person try to product manage an open source project where you know it, it, it is with all due respect to, to my great friends can be like herding cats right nobody has to do anything that you think is important everyone has their own kind of agendas and so a lot of it is just trying to get people to see the common vision and like, here's where we want to take it. Uh, and so we've made good progress on it. We haven't had a release in a long time, uh, longer than, than I would hope, at least on desktop. 
although we do have a new Android app that is in beta right now, which I'm extremely excited about. And that core team is also getting ready to launch this new um, uh, web app called Hatchet, which is kind of a complimentary product to Tomahawk, um, although not uh, not required um, to work in conjunction with Tomahawk. And, and so those two things we've been spending a lot of time on, and then we'll come back and have a, a new release on, on the desktop very soon. Um, but yeah, all of these things, there's never a shortage of stuff we want to do. Uh, and But I think the basics of, you know, it works well. It works well for me every day where I drag a playlist in and it plays one song from SoundCloud and the next song from Spotify and the next song from Beats and the next song from, uh, you know, Bandcamp. Um, it, you know, it, it solves my problem of I like stuff that's not on, that's wholly contained within one particular service. Do you mind uh, running down what services are available? Sure. So right now it is, we've got a lot that are like pending, um, but certainly the biggest is Spotify um, and SoundCloud. Those are the two most widely used. Um, there is a YouTube resolver kind of out out there that you can find um, that we didn't write, um, but works pretty well um, given there is official FM. Uh, there is a bunch of kind of, um, uh, online storage or, or or network storage ones like Subsonic and Apache. Um, there is Last.fm still has some free um, MP3s available for streaming and download actually, but that probably won't last for too much longer. Um, and what else? And then in kind of working order but not yet released, we've got a Beats Resolver, we've got a Dropbox, Google Drive. Um, and a couple of other subscription services. There's a Deezer one that's work in a varying states of of of, of uh, functionality, and a couple others. So there's a whole bunch that are kind of ready to come out. Um, and like I said, our goal is to have as many as possible. Our hope is that these services write them themselves. Uh, that would be ideal state for me. Is that you know new music service comes out and they say, cool. One of the things we want to do is get a desktop player because that's important. In my opinion, that's important. I think uh, it's no coincidence that the largest music service is the only one that has a proper desktop music player. And I tell them, you can get one for free. It's called Tomahawk. It's open source. All you have to do is write a resolver, which could be as little as you know a couple dozen lines of JavaScript, and be done with it. And there you go. Um, do you ever... Do you have... A are the services psyched that you can do this, or are they not so psyched? It depends on who you're talking to. Um, the whoop, the littler ones, uh, I think, are psyched, right? Because they realize that they're fighting a battle where they need interoperability to compete, right? So there's a lot of value in it for them to know that they're trying to compete with Spotify and they need to make sure that all of those Spotify links that are flying around Twitter and Facebook and everything else are easily playable by the people that subscribe to their service so they don't switch to Spotify. So I think there are a lot of them that are really, that are really excited. There, I think, are you know, the bigger ones that may be um, you know, less excited by it because they say, well, this is kind of one of our lock-ins is the fact that this stuff isn't portable. Um, and, you know, I, I, but I think that mentality is changing. Uh, I think... You know, Spotify started to talk at Music Hack Day this last weekend about an upcoming new web API that I think is going to expose a lot more data than um, than they previously have. So I, I think I I think and I hope that everyone under, understands that 
interoperability floats all boats and it unparalyzes a lot of people that just haven't engaged with any streaming music service because they're like, none of that shit works. I'll just keep using YouTube. Right. You know? Or, or what? Yeah, or whatever. Uh, and then, do you plan on, uh, you mentioned Android, but do you plan on mm-hmm. iOS? Do you care? Um, I do care. We do care. Uh, we have not started anything with iOS, um, so we're certainly a ways from that. Uh, the Android app has come a very long way in, in, in the last probably couple of weeks. We've been working on it for a while. Um, and so I'm very excited to kind of get that out there. But And then we'll, we'll get into iOS. But we, honestly, as an open source community, we work with the skills that we've got available to the community. Um, and so we don't currently have any uh, iOS developers that are in there. I keep trying to push it on people. Um, you know, it's a, hey, I'm looking for a big, you know, uh, a Google Summer of Code project. You know, Jay, you have any ideas? I'm like, iOS. Like, oh, I don't really want to write any, you know, Objective-C. So, so uh, if there are any out there that are interested in getting involved, we would love to have you. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, from a desktop perspective, we are just at about a million downloads. Uh, and when we release the Android app, we hope to see that number uh, get added to very quickly.